0: We're looking at the marks of a Spirit-filled church, and there are several of them, which takes us all through Scripture. We'll continue our look at a Spirit-filled church next, here on Truth For Today. And again, greetings in Christ, and welcome. This is Truth For Today. The Ministry of Valley Bible Church in Hercules. Our teacher and pastor, Pastor Phil Howard, returns us to our series on God. As we meet God, we meet Him into three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and uniquely and specifically here in this sub-series, God the Holy Spirit. So what are the marks of a Spirit-filled church? If we understand the Holy Spirit as to who He is and what He does, how does that affect how we look as the church? These are questions we're answering here today on Truth For Today. Here's Pastor Phil Howard with our broadcast.
1: Tonight, I wanted to look at a Spirit-filled church and this producing of a character in us that is Christ-like. A character that has a supernatural source uh, that does something in us. Let's talk a little bit here. Uh, today, what's language we hear? I, I'm addicted. I have an addictive behavior. And uh, we have 12-step programs. We've got overcomers. We have recovery. And thank God for all the good that they're able to do. And uh, especially in an unsaved world, where do they go for help? For sure. They, this has given them steps and some procedure because you still got to live even if you're unsaved. You got to deal with alcohol even if you're unsaved. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, what do you do? But we want to come and look at the New Testament and uh, just if I could put you in the mindset, let's say uh, if I could take you back to 50 AD and psychology's never been invented and other human means of dealing and coping have not been invented and you have become a Christian and you happen to be a homosexual before you were saved in the city of Corinth or you happen to be as most pagan Gentiles had no morals. To be in the Roman world was to have a wife for children and a mistress for fun. It was a way of life. Nobody had scruples, and if you had a daughter as a firstborn, you laid her on the temple steps or you had her aborted. Abortion had been around a long time. Pagans have always adopted it. And so you become a Christian, and we have to find out what was the modus operandi of how you lived the Christian life. What is there in this connection of coming to Christ is becoming a Christian, being a justified sinner whose life stays defeated, whose life stays addicted because there is no change possible. What did the New Testament teach would happen to those who truly knew God and came to know it? Today, there's a lot of unchanged lives because they've never been changed. And they're unchanged because they've never met the change agent. But I want us to take a journey. Now, you're going to have to do something with me. This is a theological thing, uh, and I may, I don't know how far I'll get. I want to get it all, but I may not. But what I want you to follow with me, because I'm going to go fast in a way, because I want you to get this. You're so used as a whole. Many of you just dive in for the verse for the day, right? I don't have time to read the Bible, but you've got to give me a promise. And Judas went out and hung himself. And you, know, and you say, God, are you saying something? Or, yeah, if that's the way you read the Bible. No, I want you to follow with me theological arguments. You're not used to that. What is the book arguing? What is the passage teaching over all? And I want you to get in that frame of mind. It may be a little difficult, but uh, that's what I want you to do because I want you to get this. It's life transforming. I want you to get it good enough you could tell somebody. The, The gospel does not just justify us. It sanctifies us. The gospel, the gospel that God enabled you to believe He did not just give you the faith to believe in a point of time and then you drop off into Grand Canyon for 30 years of defeat. That is not good news. His power is not only to forgive you in an instant and to declare you right, but now there is a power put in you to live right. And that's what we want to look at. Turn to a book called Romans. Now you've got to follow me. I want to give great kind of sweeping summaries. And if you don't trust me, just read all this stuff when you go home. And thank you, Marge, for making these notes for me. You would have nothing in front of you. Romans 5.12. Paul is moving from us being sinners to us getting right with God by justification, by faith. And he begins to say there are two men in history, Adam and Christ. And in Adam, you experience disobedience and death. In Christ, you experience obedience and a righteous standing. So it begins to paint the picture, you're either in Adam or in Jesus Christ. He wants you to see that, and he carries that argument into chapter 6. And in chapter 6, he says... Believers have been united with Jesus Christ. And in that union, we've been immersed into his death, into his burial, and his resurrection. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. He wants you to know this. You must know that you've been united with a new head, Jesus Christ. Now, he only asks you to respond to this truth in faith and obedience. In verse 11, he says, I want you to reckon on the fact. I want you to live out the fact that you've been united with Christ by knowing you have a living relationship now to God. And I want you to be yielding your body to this God. What will he produce? What does this union with Christ produce? The rest of the chapter chapter says servants of righteousness. This new union with Christ, when you believe it and act on it from verses 14 through the end of the chapter, we are turned into servants of righteousness. That's why united you to Christ. Now, he comes into chapter 7. And chapter 7 begins to talk about believers are not under the Torah, under the law of Moses. Now, this is a shocking thing, especially for a Jewish apostle. All the apostles were Jewish. And people who had grown up under Torah and under the Ten Commandments and to come along and say, the righteousness God expects of his new covenant people will never be produced by putting them under the law. Now, that is an astounding statement. You mean they're going to be lawless? You mean they're going to go wild? They can do anything they want? That would seem to be the argument. He gives an illustration about marriage, that you're bound to your husband as long as he's alive. But if he dies, you're free to remarry without being being called an adulteress. In his application of that illustration... The law isn't what died, verses 4 through 6, but the believer died with Jesus Christ. And so in our identification with his death, the law cannot have any say over a corpse. The law cannot command those of us who are believers who have died with Christ. Now, he goes on to say, the law is not all bad. Verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. The law was God's dictionary about our behavior. It described sins that no place to hide. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, Do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. It's interesting he got through all nine commandments, and the tenth one got him. Don't covet. That's the one. And so he said, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law. I think this was his youth before awareness of what the law was teaching, hit him. But there was a point in time where he, he caught on to what the law was saying. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good, the law, then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin... It produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. What is he saying? The law was powerless to produce righteous living. The law, the Old Testament law, could not produce right kind of living. And any time we try to put Christians under law, they all prove to be hypocrites and utter failures. Because we lie like we're keeping everything or we're failing in private. And he said in Colossians, beware of those who put you under rules that say, touch not, eat not, and do not this. He says, it gives the semblance of spirituality, but it cannot produce it. You cannot be spiritual by rules. Oh, turn there. You've got to see it. Turn to Colossians 2. 2.20 i got to turn those Bibles quick. Come on. we got another three hours. Test your spirituality. Since you die with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Any of you ever grow up around that kind of Christianity? Can't do this. Can't do that. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Rules cannot control the sin in you. Can't make enough of them. And what we do in churches, we keep loading people up with more, and they can't keep five, let alone 50. God's method of producing spirituality will be without the law. And this came as an utter shock to the Jewish audience of the day. How will people live if they're not under Torah, under the law? Then he goes on, we know the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual. So does a slave to sin. Now watch, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Sounds like he needs a psychologist. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. That sounds good. I didn't do it, it was sin. I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good but I cannot carry it out. Does this sound like your Christian life? For what I do is not the good I want to do. I make vows I won't do something, but I do it. I vow that I'm going to pray, I don't. I vow I won't lust, and I lust. I mean, this all of this is going on. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil, I do not want to do this, I keep on doing Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Wow, sounds schizophrenic. I want to do, but I can't. I'm powerless to do the good. I want to do powerless not to do the evil that I'm doing. I'm miserable. This is a miserable condition, this man's in right here. Now watch what he says. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. So what's easy, I just quit planning to do good. Evil leaves me alone. I want to do good. But the moment I make a plan to do good, evil is right there, not there, here. Wow. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. I believe the law is good. I believe it's righteous, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? In that state, he wants to be rescued. I need to be rescued from this kind of schizophrenic, confused living, a powerless person that seems the body is being run by the sin principle. The law is telling him good things. He approves of what the law commands, but there's a principle of sin in him that defeats him every time and throws him to the mat, and he's a frustrated, defeated man. He cries, I need to be rescued. (laughs) I need to get out of this condition. What is that condition? Is this the Christian life? Is this a man spirit indwelt? Or is this a man trying to keep law without divine assistance? What's going on here? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why are you thanking God? Well, I'm thanking him because he's going to rescue me some way through Christ. How will Christ rescue this man? So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. So I think the law is great, but I break it every day. I'm living the victorious Christian life. No, no, no. Wait, he cried for help. He never got any help in chapter 7. You've got to go on to chapter 8. The help, because this book didn't have chapter divisions, you know. It just kept going. Now watch. He's crying for help. What's God's answer? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Number one, in Christ, I won't be guilty anymore. In Christ, I will not be liable to penalty. Penalty will end if I could ever get in Christ. The law always kept me under penalty. If you don't do this, this will happen. If you don't do this, this will happen. I get in Christ, and since I'm no longer under the law, there is no penalty against me. Number one, very important when you're guilty to find penalties. Watch this. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free, set me free. From the law of sin and death, this law that kept defeating me and could not keep the law in chapter 7, I've been set free from that downward law of gravity, as it were, by a new law, the law of the Spirit. Is that true? I said, well, I haven't experienced it yet. Well, let's not even talk about your experience. Is that what the Word says, what Paul approached? For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so He condemns sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. There's three laws in chapter 7 through 8. There is the law of Moses, Torah. It's good, but I can't keep it. It's good, but it can't produce righteousness. It only stirs up sin in me. Law brings out the rebel in all of us. The moment you command someone not to do something, they go into a warfare about whether they're going to do it or not. Don't do it. If I talk to you in the imperative that way, I don't care how holy and saintly you are, you're deceivers in your beings, don't you tell me what to do. You just prove your, your origin. All sinners hate to be told what to do by one another or by God. And the law of Moses, 613 commands, and Israel did a good job breaking most all of them. If anybody could have kept the law, Israel would have. In my bet, Gentiles didn't have a chance. We're too big a party animals. But if anybody would have been able to do it in the power of human nature, I think Israel would have. But even they failed under the law. So then there's another law, the law of sin. I've got the law of Moses, but, but Moses, you don't know, I've got another law in me. It's called the law of sin. And that law is stronger than your law to restrain. Your law, I just throw it away. I just break the commandments. I'm throwing a party with Aaron and the golden calf crowd. I I don't want the law. But in chapter 8, he introduces the law of the Spirit. And the law of the Spirit defeats the law of sin and death. And the law of the Spirit helps me fulfill all the righteousness that the law wanted to produce but was powerless to produce. 8.4, all the commands of the law that were righteous and good for us to do, the Spirit in the people of God fulfills it without ever even knowing the Ten Commandments. Did you know that spirit-indwelt people obey the Ten Commandments without even having a copy of them? They don't need a copy. A spirit-indwelt believer walking in the Spirit cannot steal another man's goods, cannot take the Lord's name in vain. The Spirit is the new ingredient of the New Testament, New Covenant people. He comes in. Now, he carries out his argument here. Those who live according to the sinful nature. Look at what flesh people look like. People in the sinful nature that NIV says, or the flesh, they live according to the sinful nature. They have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Notice the contrast we give for you in the overhead here. What the flesh looks like in the spirit people. Flesh people, spirit people. Two categories of people. Unsaved people, saved people. One has a mind on the flesh, which represents the old life and a sinful way of living that we were saved from. When he saved you, he not only dealt with your sin acts, he deals with the sin principle in you. You you have died to the sin principle. Oh, it's alive, but you are in a position of being freed from its power and control. That power has been broken through the cross work and through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what he's telling them. Now watch how pivotally it changes in verse 9. You, however, who's the you? Believers. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. Wait, he's going to qualify it. If the Spirit of God lives in you, The qualification for being freed from the Spirit's power over you is just to have the Holy Spirit on board. You have the power source in you now. He's in you.
0: And this is Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard. As we conclude our time together today, we would invite you to contact us if you have questions, comments about the broadcast. Maybe you have a question about your own walk and relationship with the Lord or a prayer request. We'd love to hear from you. Please get in touch with us today. We have a couple of ways to do so. The easiest might be simply visiting our website, truthfortodayradio.org. You can drop us an email. We have other means of contact that you'll find there at truthfortodayradio.org. We also have a lot of resource materials available for your growth and relationship with Christ. Our design and desire is to see that you grow in Christ, grow according to his knowledge and grace. Any way we can help, well, that's why we're here. So stop by truthfortodayradio.org or simply give us a call. 855-833-9864. 855-833-9864. Again, you can reach us at 855-833-9864. Please bear in mind as you contact us that this is a listener-supported ministry. As you link arms with us financially, we're able to continue the ministry here on this radio station. Prayerfully consider how you might get involved in the ministry of Truth For Today, won't you? 855 855- or write to us. Our address is 1511 M. Sycamore Avenue Suite 278 Hercules, California The zip code is 94547 And that website once again truthfortodayradio.org It is a pleasure spending time with you in God's Word. We trust we'll see you next time we get together for another broadcast of Truth For Today with Pastor Phil Howard.